The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Churchill, the great orator, in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. I'm Harry DeKetville, comment editor of The Telegraph, and this is the first in a series of three podcasts where we explore the power of Churchill's great speeches. In the fourth and final episode, we'll talk to the actor Gary Oldman about playing the great man. that line about broad sunlit uplands which is almost miltonic you think of of peace and sunshine and I, I, I love that line of his speech you know a bright light has caught the helmets of our soldiers and warmed and lifted all our hearts now this is not the end the one that sticks in my mind is, is an apocryphal one that when he said, you know, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them on the landing areas. It's said that he ended that with, we'll throw broken bottles at the bastards, that's all we've got left, and that the censor beeped it out. But <laughs> that, that still sticks with me as an example of Churchill's excellent humour. In spite of all terror, victory, however long, I'll tear up. For without victory, there is no survival. Mr. Speaker, on Friday evening last, I received His Majesty's commission to form a new administration. It was the evident wish and will of Parliament and the nation that this should be conceived on the broadest possible basis and that it should include all parties, both those who supported the late government and also the parties of the opposition. I have completed the most important part of this task. A war cabinet has been formed of five members, representing with the liberal opposition, the unity of the nation. I'm here in the Churchill dining room of the House of Parliament and House of Commons. The Commons chamber itself is just a short stretch away from here, down a corridor leading off this room. The staff behind me here of the Palace of Westminster setting up for a lunch. And 70 years ago, when Churchill was wartime leader, he would have been in here. He would have enjoyed his toast, his jam, those formidable breakfasts that kept him going. And when I look around, I can see even a painting by him on the wall. It's of the Rialto Bridge in Venice, and it's a reminder of the creative soul and spirit that he was. That creativity, of course, feeding in to so many of his speeches, so many of his words, which he really enlivened his audiences with, not just the great British public, but the parliamentarians around him in this building. And it's there that I want to start with his first speech to the House of Commons. May the 13th, 1940, Churchill had a job to do to convince his parliamentarians to back him as Prime Minister. It was a perilous moment, a chaotic moment. The fighting is raging in France. Chamberlain has just been forced to stand down. And Churchill has been summoned to form a government and become Prime Minister to the surprise even of the palace. 
refer to form and administration of this scale and complexity as a serious undertaking in itself. But it must be remembered that we are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history. The 1940 speech is a very extraordinary moment because it's quite difficult from now to understand how important the politics, indeed the politics, the high politics of cabinet was in the eventual turning round of the war effort. My name is Jean Seaton and I'm a professor of media history at the University of Westminster. So he becomes the least unacceptable candidate because this is a coalition that has to work. And he emerges out of the most extraordinary set of cabinet meetings, having been humanely courteous, physically delicate, as he often was, around Chamberlain. No no rudenesses, no bad temper, because Chamberlain has to come to accept it. So he reaches being leader under the most dire circumstances, but also out of the most delicate political negotiating. And he's incorrigibly optimistic in his spirits, I think, while also attended by great black depressions. But he does have a very sunny spirit. And, you know, by the grace of God, really, um, we benefited from that. Because I think what you have to do is you have to think... What's he doing when he's doing making these speeches? And, of course, he's speaking to Parliament and, of course, he's speaking to the British public. He's also speaking to himself. Hmm. He's also rallying his own good spirits. And, actually, that, I think that's a very interesting fact because when you look at the sort of capacity of a leader, then how do they maintain their own verity of vision and good spirits? And, of course, he does it partly through spirits. (laughs) We're talking alcoholic spirits. We're talking about alcohol. Um, But we're also talking about company. He's he's an inveterate talker, conductor of tables. He, He tests things. He needs an audience. He needs people. He makes the most extraordinary demands on people around him. We're here in Portcullis House, which is the parliamentary office building next to the famous Palace of Westminster and I'm here to meet Sir Nicholas Soames, Churchill's grandson, in his parliamentary office. You have got the most splendid office here. Come and sit down here. Perfect. I worked here very late the other night when there was a full moon and you've never seen anything so extraordinary. It's like, you know, Monet painting. Absolutely beautiful. Indeed, Monet did paint this scene, didn't he? Just outside the River Thames, which we can see from these wonderful windows. He did. As a politician yourself, how do you see the blood, toil, tears and sweat speech as a political device? Did it achieve what he wanted it to achieve? I can't read it, hear it, listen to it or anything without crying to this day. I mean, the power of that, the sheer power... Uh, of that speech in its words and in the time that it was given. You, you, I don't think you'll ever hear that again. I don't see how you ever could. I don't see how you would ever combine the circumstance with the man and the need for him to say what he did. And he did say what he needed to say. And it's almost impossible now, in retrospect, to look back and realise 
that he was himself in a position of great peril. He didn't have the support of his party. He didn't have the support of his cabinet, as you can see. You know, I mean, there was still, I mean, it was uh, by the time Lord Halifax and Neville Chamberlain had effectively agreed that the w there was to be no parley with the Italians. I mean, up till that time, I just can't conceive of what he was carrying on his shoulders. I can't conceive it. What were your memories of him? Did you ever see him in preparation? Or I know that you would have been... I didn't. I was too young. But I can tell you very clearly. I mean, my mother described... For instance, I mean, I remember as a very small child being told off that we were not allowed to make any noise in a chartwell at all. Um, uh, and my grandmother saying, Hush, children, your grandfather is with speech. As if he was pregnant. You know, he is with speech. I remember that. But from my from people who who saw him writing these speeches, um, my mother said, you know, they were all absorbing, you know, and they spent hours and hours, you know, he'd be dictating at two in the morning. But even though they were perfect when they were typed, you know, literally on the way to the House of Commons, he would still be working on the to get the words absolutely right. So what mattered was that he struck the right word. And I think that this all goes back to reading Macaulay and, you know, his days at Harrow when he, he, the only thing that he learned about was history, really. He didn't learn anything else, really. And then he realised how, what a terrible deficit that was in his education. All the time he was in India, he read and read and read and read. And you can see the bookseller's bills that Lady Randolph kept of what she sent him. Jenny Churchill, known as Lady Randolph, was Winston Churchill's American-born mother, and she was an absolutely key guide and inspiration in his journey to becoming an orator. I think his upbringing is very, very important. Mm. His father died when he was only 20, mm. and his father really had very little to do with him in those 20 years. My name is Anne Seber, and I'm a historian and biographer of Churchill's mother, Jenny. It was very definitely his mother who took charge of his education, his mother who did everything for him. And she taught Winston the power of oratory by one specific introduction that she made when he was only 20 at Sandhurst, missing his father, desperately needing a mentor. And she decided to up and go off to Paris. And while she was in Paris, her sister introduced her to an Irish-born Democrat demagogue by the name of William Burke Cochrane. And Jenny said to Burke Cochrane, I have this son. He really is at a loss. Will you look after him if he comes to New York? And it was an introduction of magic. Immediately, Winston knew that this was the man he was going to model himself on. They wrote letters constantly. Churchill sent him his articles for his comments. He borrowed all his speeches and he started learning them by heart. And together with the speeches of his father, Randolph Churchill, which he also learnt, he consciously created a style. He carved out a method of rhetoric. And so in 1897, when he was only 22, just after he'd met Burke Cochrane, he wrote an essay on the scaffolding of rhetoric. And that's really important because some of the things that he poured into that essay are what he consciously honed over the next few years. 
While serving as a 22-year-old army officer in India, Churchill wrote an essay called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric, which I'm sure you know. It begins with such prescience, given his later career, with an appreciation of the lasting power of public speaking. Would you just read us the, the opening lines, just the first half of paragraph? all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as the gift of oratory. He who enjoys it wields a power more durable than that of a great king. He is an independent force in the world, that's certainly true. Abandoned by his party, Churchill was. Betrayed by his friends, Churchill was. Stripped of his offices, whoever can command this power is still formidable. Many have watched its effects. A meeting of grave citizens protected by all the cynicism of these prosaic days is unable to resist its influence. From unresponsive silence they advance to grudging approval and thence to complete agreement with the Speaker. The chairs become louder and more frequent. The enthusiasm momentarily increases until they are convulsed by emotions they are unable to control and shaken by passions to which they have resigned the direction. Well, say no more, really. And what interests me so much is that he learnt this in a very artificial way, almost, and yet you've described him as totally authentic. How do you reconcile the authenticity of the man with his ability to marshal words, to, if necessary, create a character for himself and the role that he needed to? Well, because the words are authentic. That's the point. Um, you know, it's a very important point, this authenticity thing, because uh, it is true that, you know, in, uh, there are a lot of people who consider his early speeches in the House to have been so structured as to be just a sort of immediate uh, 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 response which bore no resemblance to the earlier part of the debate. But actually they did, because he thought about it all. He used to take so long writing these speeches, and they, such effort and trouble went into them. And I think part of that was because of the tragedy that befell Lord Randolph, my, um, Churchill's father, my great-grandfather, that awful occasion in the house when Lord Randolph just dried up completely and his friends watched in tears while he like disintegrated. on the stage, he yeah, forgot his lines. Completely, you know. And I think my grandfather was determined that that would never happen. So the hours and hours and hours he spent you could say render the speeches inauthentic, but not the words. Later on in life, he always said that what he wanted most of all was to please his father because his father had had so much promise and it hadn't been fulfilled for whatever reason. And he was terrified of ending like his father, who'd risen to the heights and been Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1886 for about six months and then chucked it all in. So I think he wanted to please his father, but it was very definitely his mother who really worked to promote Winston. And she wrote these extraordinary letters to him saying, I believe in your lucky star. I believe it's your fate to lead. I believe it's your destiny. So at every stage, his mother was persuading him that actually he had been born to greatness. Because he didn't believe in that himself, I suppose. Well, he had terrible lows. Don't forget when he was Home Secretary in 1911, he was not popular. And then the terrible fiasco of the Dardanelles when Clemmy, his wife, said, I really thought he might die of grief. Who was it who went to his home at Ho Farm in Surrey and persuaded him, 
this is not the time to give in, retrench. She instilled into him that it was his destiny to lead. So in 1940, when he picked up the reins of power, he was approaching 65. And it wasn't a given that he would be leader. But I think all this pent-up emotion and belief in him that Jenny had really instilled him with from the moment he was born was there and ready to burst forth. Churchill, the great orator, in association with Universal Pictures' Darkest Hour. We're in this labyrinth of corridors near or underneath the chamber of the House of Commons, the neo-Gothic, Pugin-esque arches above us and these leather-backed chairs with the famous portcullis symbol upon them. It's a busy day. You can probably hear the staff getting ready here in Parliament. A Wednesday, Prime Minister's questions will be happening about 12 o'clock and the Prime Minister will be standing up to defend her position. Of course, in 1940, it was Churchill who was standing up to defend his position. His very fate rested upon this speech. He'd just been made Prime Minister. But amazing to think of it as we look back now, he didn't have the confidence of the House, he didn't even have the confidence of his own party. He knew he had to stand up and convince them, tell them that he'd formed a government, that he'd named his ministers and that he was going to leave them to victory. In this crisis I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the House at any length today. I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make all allowances for any lack of ceremony with which it has been necessary to act. My name is Richard Toy and I am Professor of Modern History at the University of Exeter and author of three books on Winston Churchill. What he's talking about is, first of all, he actually makes an apology for not spending more time speaking to the House of Commons. He says he'll come back later and, and sort of do it in more depth. But also he's describing the processes of forming his government, which he's actually done with you know, quite expeditiously, really. But there's still work to be done in, t- in terms of appointing junior ministers and so on. So you know, the, the whole first half of the speech, although it's very well phrased, is about sort of practical stuff. And then there's this sudden an extraordinary shift in tone. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. I trust that when Parliament reconsiders, you know, it's a sort of slightly formal formulation. I mean, obviously, I would say to the House, as I have said to those who have joined the government, he's not saying it to the people. He's saying, I'm saying to you in Parliament what I've already said that we in Cabinet have agreed. And then he says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Then you're in the social context of men grasping their determination to go forward into very difficult circumstances. But it's not abstract. It's not just at the people. He's told you where he said it. I mean, you know, I think the statue of Churchill, like so many statues in Parliament Square, is so misleading because it's big and bulky and ox-like and hard. This was not an adamantine chap. This has got soft British harrow flesh with a flushing cheek. He's fleshy and soft. And he is also um, gifted 
with the capacity to communicate emotion and to feel it. How does he do that? Tell me about yes. how he well, does that with punctuation and, 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 and phrasing and syntax and rhythm and the musicality. Well, these speeches took him days and days to write. He calls on his drenchedness in the Book of Common Prayer and in the Bible, absolutely drenched, and in Milton and in Shakespeare. So the cadences come deep, deep from the very soul of the English language. Indeed, Churchill's speeches often did take on a rhythm and repetition reminiscent of Shakespearean verse. The, the, the trouble with doing to be or not to be is that everybody joins in. Uh, you found this to be true, and certainly I know... Well, it certainly was true in Sir Winston's case because... In an um, interview, the actor, the late Richard Burton, he, described uh, an extraordinary moment when down. Churchill came to see him playing Hamlet at the old Vic Theatre in 1953. And I came on stage feeling absolutely diabolical. <laughs> but I was told that the old man was in front. Of course, there was only one old man. I started to speak first lines of Hamlet, a little more than kin and less than kind. And I heard this extraordinary rumble <laughs> in the front row of the stalls. And I, I wondered what it was. I thought, have I got a hangover? What's going on? And it was uh, Sir Winston uh, speaking the lines with me. And I could not shake him off, whatever I did, wherever I went. To be or not to be, he was with me to the death, <laughs> every word. I suppose he was rather upset that he wasn't on stage. <laughs> it was really quite extraordinary. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, for instance, with Sir Winston joining you in a duet. It's not the easiest thing in the world. Churchill had always been a pretty theatrical politician, right from the word go, right from when, as a young man of 25, he was fighting his first election in 1900. My name is Simon Heffer. I write for the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs, but I also write history books about the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And he came from that late Victorian tradition of, if you like, stump orators, people who uh, went out and met the public. Gladstone was a famous example of this, and communed with the public and sought at a time when the franchise was expanding, when more and more people were getting the vote, to, to, to persuade people to support their party. Because in the, at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, Many people had only just acquired the vote, many men, women didn't have it at all. And so Churchill grew up in a political context where people had possibly no historic allegiance to a party and he needed to persuade them to, to have that. He was on slightly different ground in 1940. He was dramatic. He was certainly using language and rhetoric in a highly dramatic way to make his point and to win people over. He wasn't a natural orator, I mean, any more than Cicero was. He trained and worked at it. He did voice exercises, just as Margaret Thatcher later was too, because he had a stammer and a lisp, um, which he had to overcome to develop this, this speaking style. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator and the author of a book about rhetoric called You Talking to Me, Rhetoric from Aristotle to Obama. And he would prepare and practice for hours when he wrote out his speeches. His speeches, as you'll notice, even in this one, were incredibly long sentences. I mean, they sometimes get called his rolling periods. Uh, but when he was writing them out, those rolling periods would be set out almost like free verse, because he knew where he wanted to pause. He knew exactly how he wanted to deliver them. And he'd practice and practice. There's a, there are lovely stories about him practicing. Like he, he was thundering away in the bath one day, and his butler said, What's that, sir? And he said, I wasn't speaking to you, I was addressing the House of Commons. 
and on another occasion, apparently, he, he was so taken up with his, his you know, thundering away, rehearsing his speech, that he didn't notice that the ash had dropped off his cigar and set fire to his dressing gown. Um, and his private secretary said, Sir, you're on fire. Um, may I extinguish you? Yes, very good. Carry on. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. This sense of uh, speaking in blank verse, almost. It's not quite poetry, but it's not quite well, prose. It's in between. It is. And, and as you've seen in, as, in the speeches as they were prepared, they were typed in... It was called poetry typing, so that... It was typed in line below, according to his breathing and his and the way the w- the words were given uh, given a special exaggeration. The rhythm, and the, the rhythm, and, and how he bra- how he breathed. I mean, he had mastered it by the time he died. Let's face it. He's a writer. I mean, what had he done in the wasteland? Yes, he wrote and wrote and wrote. He's writing now. All through the war, he goes on writing. He is a writer, and although he is prodigious. And he dictates. There's a wonderful uh, memo when he's going off to Chevening, and he says, um, "You know, I'll need six young ladies. I'm feeling particularly fertile tonight." Which, in the ha- you know, in the voice of anybody else, sounds. I mean, he'd, he'd be up in front of the parliamentary committee now. But um, what he meant was that he wanted to, to dictate, and words at a very high level, and they're very clear. The other thing is hymns. He knows how. The British hymnal produces these great feelings. So he's always, like all great feeling and words, he's suppressing his own feelings. There is nothing more powerful in Britain than than the suppressed feeling trying to break through. As we walk along here, we just forget how perilous Churchill's own position was as he strode these corridors into the chamber to give this speech in 1940. His own position was tenuous. He didn't even have the support of the king or his own back benches, let alone the people and the country. He knew he had to fight not just for the country's survival, but for his own. But I, I can't sound like my grandpa, and I will sound such a... Oh, dear God. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our our might and with with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. He sets up these rhetorical questions, doesn't he? That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? Of course, everybody will say, well, our aim is to try and defeat the Germans. And And does he give a long, falutin answer? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. And I suppose that repetition. At all costs, victory. So victory, victory at all costs, victory. In spite of all terror, victory, however long... I'll tear up. Mm. It's so However long and hard the road will be, for without victory there is no survival. Let that be realised. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward forward towards towards its goal. goal. But I take up my my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At 
this time I feel entitled to claim the edible. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. God Almighty. Oh, unbelievable. I've never read it, I've never read it out loud in my life. I mean, he surrendered all the pleasures, really, for a lifetime of hard work. He kept his family, he had no money, he was completely penniless, really. He kept his entire family by his pen in considerable style. Um, he worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And his commitment was to his country and to public service. That's what he most revered and loved. What are your memories? What will you take with you as you go into your own, own old age of him, because he must have been an old man when you were a young man. Well, he was an old man. I mean, I was 16 when he died, and for the last two or three years of his life, my grandfather really was a very old man indeed, and derived most pleasure, really, from having my youngest brother, um, Rupert, who used to sit on his knee when he was about two years old, and they had nothing to say to each other, but were in complete harmony together. Do you know the great thing of age and children? But... What I take from him, really, is this extraordinary power of language and leadership. And it wasn't all easy. I mean, you know, and, you know, I think some of those marvellous letters my grandmother wrote him about being so unpleasant to, and, and so demanding to people. But he was demanding because he knew the sense of urgency was there in 1914 because the country could have been invaded at any minute by vastly superior forces. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aidable. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. Churchill, the Great Orator, was presented by me, Harry DeKettville, and produced by Sarah Cudden. It was a blanket production for The Telegraph. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of Churchill, the Great Orator, subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcast host, and please do leave us a review. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.